And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, and tonight it's going to be a very special edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where we are tracking the impossible, and tonight are going to report on both the impossible and the mysterious, and the implausible the illogical, and the inevitable. And by the time we get to the next three hours, uh, we're going to cover all those bases. My guest tonight, I'm very, very happy to have him back. He hasn't been on the show for quite a while. My old friend and colleague, Tim Ventura, he's not old. You know, we've just known each other a long, long time. I remember when Tim visited Robin and me here in uh, Albuquerque, and we had all kinds of interesting adventures and great dinners and conversation and all that. And that was so many years ago. Anyway, so Tim is with us. And the reason that Tim is with us, um, when I have an anti-gravity question, which, you know, it's not often, but there are times, the guy I think to, you know, the kind of go-to guy that I immediately think of is Tim. Because Tim, many, many years ago, created something really avant-garde and ahead of its time something called the American Anti-Gravity Foundation, or American Anti-Gravity. He'll, he'll correct me on the right term. And he's been working in this area, you know, since before and, and, and since, since, you know. That's why it's going to be really interesting to discuss tonight not only the current status of this impossible space drive, which was not supposed to work, which is working, as we're going to show, is being lied about, as we're going to show, and how it is connected to a bigger picture, which is part of all those other, you know, um, nomenclatures that I used just a few moments ago. So, uh, Greg Ahrens is also going to going to uh, join us uh, in a little while, a few minutes, because Greg and I have been independently monitoring, through sources that Greg will describe, the independent tracking of this little spacecraft you know, the little engine that could, except it can't because it doesn't have an engine. This is what everybody is missing. So that's what we're going to do tonight is correct the record and and turn the page in history because history is evolving at warp nine, mixing our metaphors madly, even as we're not watching or able to watch. Now, what's really interesting is that tonight's show is connected in a very odd way with last night's show. Remember, last night, Nova Spivak and I and Andrew Curry discussed the implications of another unmanned mission heading to the moon, loaded with gear, having a landing system exactly wrongly designed if you want to get down through an ancient glass dome. And the bet is 50-50, they're going to, like all the others, crash. 50% of the missions sent to the moon, all unmanned, of course, since 1976, which was the date of the last Russian mission, Luna 24. Half of the recent crop have, have, have failed. They've, they've crashed. They've, you know, dumbed down, ran into the lunar surface after having adventures that you could see in the telemetry on the way down. And nobody seems to be looking at this and saying, what the hell is going wrong? How come we have far fewer successful landing missions now 
than we had, you know, almost over half a century ago with the equivalent, again, quoting Spock, of stone knives and bearskins in the realm of space technology. I mean, we've got solid state this and solid state that and micro-miniaturized and, and literally 3D printed. Let me just give you one example why 3D printing is such a stunning breakthrough in space technology, both in the mechanical stuff and the electronic stuff. When you make ordinary things on Earth, you put them together. You know, part A, part B, part C goes into slot A, slot B, that kind of thing. You assemble machines from smaller subunits of the machine. With modern technology, you can literally fashion in a 3D block a circuit which is literally self-contained, has all the right wiring, all the right connections, all the right voltages, all the right resistor, all the right everything, and it literally is not made of separate pieces. It's all one piece. And that also goes for mechanical things like valves and rocket engines and pumps. And, you know, in other words, the, the materials processing technology and the electronics micro miniaturization curve, where you can do more and more with tinier and tinier, are both moving in the direction where we are so much better now at everything than we were at the dawn of the space program. And yet half our missions are crashing. Doesn't that tell anybody, as I said last night, that maybe there's an X factor, which is not being calculated into any of these super genius companies and new government moon landing programs that have been fired up since 1976? And then, of course, there's the piece de resistance, which is, if this goes on, at what point will saner heads rise up, look around and say, we got to figure this out. And then, of course, they're going to find the explanation, which is my ancient lunar dome. In all its incredible photographic glory, which we have got literally hundreds of thousands of pictures of this damn dome from space missions going all the way back before Apollo. And yet people look and since they don't understand what the moon should look like if it didn't have a dome, I guess, uh, even though we've put side-by-side -side comparisons, nobody seems to want to get it. And I'm really thinking after all these years of talking about this and laying out repeated data, I mean, next weekend I'm going to surprise the hell out of my friend Joseph Farrell by showing him how he inadvertently put me on a trail through some stunningly new and crucial early, early data from the U.S. government on the existence of the ancient lunar dome something which he knows nothing about yet, even though he was the inspiration. And I'll go through how that happened last, you know, next Saturday night. But the conclusion is that we know so many properties now of this dome, looking at the publicly available data, if you look, that the smart guys, the guys spending millions or tens of millions on these missions should smarten up and look you know, around and smell the coffee and all that and figure out maybe Hoagland is right. The one nation, India, which recently cracked the curse and landed as a fourth nation to land successfully an unmanned spacecraft on the moon, uh, was India. 
which has enormous, incredible historic and prehistoric implications, metaphysical implications, symbolic associations, ancient history, projection. It, it, it does not stop, it just begins. They made it down and they discovered something which, weirdly enough, my friend and colleague, Novus Vivek, brought up tonight. And we don't have time because it's not really the place tonight to do this, but we're going to do a whole show on what I'm going to call the scale of consciousness. And by that I mean, does consciousness, human or otherwise, have to be embodied only in a six-foot, bilaterally symmetric, hominid frame? Could you have intelligence, consciousness, at the level of a mouse, a microbe, just to give you two more data points on that curve. Is there something intimately connecting consciousness with scale, or are these two variables in a variable universe where maybe consciousness could be embodied in beings much bigger than we are? or, as Nova said last night, much, much smaller. Now, how does that fit into tonight? Because that model, the consciousness and scale of the biological package, are not really connected, is connected through the, the theme of hyperdimensional physics. And what's happened tonight, actually happened a couple of weeks ago, but we we're you know talking about it tonight, with new data, is to be seen in my item number two and three. Because this little engine that could, if it even was an engine, Barry one, doing something we can measure and document and lay out that everybody can look at and say, oh my God, that should not be there. The official coverage of this physics-defying quantum drive experiment um, is that it it's over and done with. They never got a chance to turn it on, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find the details if you log on to my item number two in Radio with Pictures. All of which is prescinding from my item number one. Remember how what I led with last night, this new astonishing rumor that the Russians are creating and developing a secret nuclear weapon to go into orbit and blow up all our satellites? And, of course, this is not a new idea. It's been there since the beginning of the, you know, Cold War, the contretemps between Russia, Soviet Union, and the United States, and then, you know, communist China, nations with nuclear weapons that are antithetical to each other politically are a danger of dooming the entire planet, and we've lived with that now through most of my entire life. So what's new about the idea of putting nukes into, into space? Because I don't think they're really referring to nukes. I think nuclear and atomic are code words, either consciously or unconsciously, for a political system grappling with the discovery of a weapons system development, which is based really not on nukes, blowing things up, that kind of thing, but on the precision use of hyperdimensional physics to take out from Earth orbit 
reconnaissance satellites of the other side, in this case, ours. And if that's what they're really talking about, the implications are so stunningly transformative in terms of war and our existence. And as we're going to go through the morning and talk with both Greg and, and Tim, I, I have some other dots I'm going to kind of put together in this frame and see if, you know, they resonate with, uh, with our conversation tonight. But I think we're on the verge of something really astonishing, either ongoing and about to be revealed or ongoing and someone is desperately trying not to reveal it, except in the most arcane clues, kind of like um, you're talking to an audience that already knows the lingo and the secret conversation. So without further ado, uh, let me turn to my guest tonight. Tim Ventura is the founder of American Anti-Gravity, as I said, which is the nation's largest forum dedicated to exploring the physics and innovators behind anti-gravity. I mean, this incredibly mythical uh, holy grail of physics and science fiction and futurists and people that, you know, are kind of thinking that we're stuck here if we're limited to sublight travel. Anyway, uh, American Anti-Gravity explores anti-gravity, uh, warp drives, the emerging sciences in breakthrough propulsion physics, and originally, when Tim founded it back in 2002, it was a hands-on experimenter's website for the emerging propulsion technologies, and it has grown over time into a massive collection of research, interviews, scientific knowledge, all relating to this emerging space and energy science. And it currently serves as a community center for the bleeding-edge research not being covered by the traditional media. You can read the rest of, of Tim's bio there, and then, there are, of course, links to his website at the top, American Anti-Gravity. And then he's got another one now, Alt-Propulsion. Mr. Ventura, welcome back to the other side of Midnight. Thank you for having me on, Richard. Thank you. Well, it's been much, much, much too long, but it's kind of like that old, you know, I keep bringing out these, you know, commercial cliches. Remember the Gallo wine commercial? Make no wine before it's time. Yeah. Well, well um, I decided... gravity has been defunct for several years, so I, I would direct the audience probably to altpropology.com. Okay, that okay. That would be the... So, Tim, if, if you could take off American Anti-Gravity as one of the links and just leave alt propulsion. And, of course, alt means alternative, alternate. Yeah. Yeah, so alternative propulsion, and then I do a, a futurism podcast as well. And, I, you know, I have a link there on, on Linktree to, you know, all of my stuff. So if folks want to learn more about that. Uh, and, and that may come in handy because there are a couple other technologies that are similar to the Ivo drive. And I, I recently did an interview on one of those. So folks can learn more about that there. Okay. So for people that, you know, know nothing about all this, which is most of us, why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, let's start with experiments in the American literature, scientific literature, uh, regarding anti-gravity going all the way back to T. Townsend Brown. And then we can move from there to the current because my sneaking suspicion, and correct me if I'm wrong, but given the fact that I can find no details, technical details regarding the IVO quantum drive, 
as soon as I found out the company was into uh, capacitors, condensers, big time, I said, oh, I know what they've done. They've simply put a T. Townsend Brown, you know, gravitator in a satellite and turned the damn thing on. What do you Yeah. Think? Well, so this goes back to, I believe, something called Fitzo's condenser around the turn of the 20th century. And that later First of became... all, for folks that are not electronics guys, what are condensers or well, capacitors? Yeah. yeah, but most people don't know either one. So, you know, be, be a teacher. Well, okay. So the, the very short part is um, if you have, yeah, I mean, any any break in a wire will have what's called capacitance. You'll have more charge on one side than the other, right? And so um, so you'll have like a net positive charge on one side and a net negative charge on the other. Any, any junction in a wire, right, where you've got charge. Now, if you make those into flat plates, you can maximize that charge and actually store it. So you store the charge on one side of a gap and then it creates a negative charge, an opposite polarity charge on the other side. Right? So, so this is a little mechanical gadget. Yeah, yeah. And they're all over the place. They're all over the place. I mean, there are, you know. Well, they've been with us for, what, a couple hundred years at least. Yeah. And they're in your electronics. They're in your phone. They're in your car. They're in, they're in everything. It's just a normal part of electronics now. Um, they use them for all sorts of stuff. You know, you can use big ones to store energy, right? And and they use those for, like, if you need to store energy and rapidly release it, right? Like, uh, yeah, the Navy was playing with rail guns. Um, you know, some of them use them for, like, battery backup supplies for instantaneous load balancing, things like that. They they have big ones. They're, they're big cans. They, look, they just look like kind of like a small-sized paint can. Um, and there are also tiny ones. You know, there there are probably thousands of them in your phone, you know, in your computer. So, they, they use them for timing. They use them for all sorts of stuff. It's it's one of the fundamental components of modern electronics. Now, uh, most capacitors, they, they come in all different sizes and shapes, but the ones that people are familiar with uh, are basically ribbon capacitors where they do have a, a, a large plate, right, on one side and the other with, with a gap between them, but that's wrapped into kind of a coil design and that may flex. In fact, they do flex a little bit, uh, you know, during normal normal operation. But there's there's no net movement, right? Because it's wrapped into a coil. And it's I think you're getting a little like deep this. into capacitors. The key thing that Brown and his uh, uh, mentor at the, this Ohio College found back in the what teens, that if you charge up a capacitor, and then you discharge it, and it's sitting suspended by a string from the ceiling for some reason it wants to move you're not that was the belief and there are different approaches to it what do you mean that so was the belief well that's the belief i mean it's so the fitzos condenser is is what they call a pancake capacitor it's right. a little bit different than a ribbon okay right. and so a pancake capacitor literally just has a stack of plates with a little dielectric in between them you charge one into the stack, and they're asymmetrically shaped, which means this, which means that the, the positive plates are larger than the negative ones. And T.T. Brown felt that this created a forward motion. And it's one of those things that, that comes up. Oh, wait, wait, wait. When time. you said he felt, didn't he measure it? 
um, there have been measurements, but one of the challenges has been uh, these things are typically tested at high voltage and you get ion leakage in the air. And so you have to test them in a vacuum chamber. One of the other potential challenges has been uh, uh, vacuum chambers are not giant usually. So it's possible that it's being attracted to the walls, right? Because it's a high voltage electrostatic device. Um, you end up with other stuff. You end up like basically with bleed off from the electrolyte, bleed off from, uh, you know, the, the okay, let me let, let, so, let me interrupt. Okay. Because, you know, we don't want to spend the whole time telling people how to build capacitors. The idea was that Brown found in his experiment, not theory, experiments, that when he discharged a capacitor, it moved toward the positive pole, the positively charged part of the circuit. Yeah. And yeah, and you're and you were just and, and of, Yeah, and you were just describing for Yeah, it's it's been something that it has been tested and measured, but it's been a point of contention with mainstream science for probably about a century. And well, so this, all right, let's let me let me build on that. The idea that you, if you can't test something like this, you know, anti-gravity on Earth, even in a very expensive super duper NASA vacuum chamber, the obvious place to test something as phenomenal as a space drive where if you just connect and disconnect the circuit, it wants to move, which means no fuel, no energy source except for the battery or the elect electrons you're supplying, which is a separate issue. And it can go forever. As long as there's electricity, which you can get from the sun in space, it can go forever. So my, my big, huge question is a geopolitical question. Based on this and what you just described as the difficulty in getting a pure answer for some critics from these tests from Brown forward to now on Earth in vacuum chambers, you would think, would you not, that the obvious logical thing to do is when spaceflight rears its head, i.e. after Sputnik, and the technology is sufficiently mature, let's say 10 years in, to send up payloads with very interesting, unique experiments like a capacitor drive, T. Towser Brown drive. Nobody, since the beginning of the space program, at least publicly, that I've been able to track down, seems to have wanted to ever think of simply doing this. Yeah. And I, that's I, stunningly I, I weird. Always, that is so effing weird that it doesn't make sense unless this is a suppressed technology. Well, I, I think Ivo is the first. so To be publicly tested. Yeah. Well, how about secret tests? Don't you think the military has been testing this idea from the get-go? I mean... Brown attracted a whole bunch of attention from the U.S. Navy, and the story of, of that soap opera is amazing, involving UFOs at some point and maybe the disappearance of the Eldridge, you know, the Philadelphia experiment at another point. Uh, Brown's life is just a stunning cacophony of fascinating discoveries which parallel our own hyper-dimensional experiments with the Accutron. He and I separately, because I didn't read the background, have arrived at the same conclusion regarding what Brown was measuring. So it really is a hyperdimensional connection. Whatever the specifics of the technology, the only way it can work is by reaching outside three dimensions of space. Oh, it's entirely possible. Yeah. Well, that's what experiments are supposed to weed out. 
the possible from the impossible, right? So, in, well, I, go ahead. I, I, I think in this case, I, so the IVO goal was uh, basically several micro newtons force, which is a tiny, 50, tiny, tiny 52, 52 millinewtons, not micro, millions. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, tell, so, people, yeah. tell people what a newton is. It's about, what, two pounds? Yeah, yeah. So very small. So, so it's a so it's a thousandth of two pounds. I'm trying to put this in perspective for people that are dealing newtons and kilograms and all that. So, what would that be? A few ounces of thrust, right? Yeah, very small amount. But very small. but in zero gravity or in orbit, a few ounces of thrust for infinity in t- in terms of space and time means you can go anywhere ultimately you want to with no fuel. Zero fuel. And nobody thought before this company to do this in Earth orbit in 70-some years of the space program. I don't believe it. So politically, when I saw that Ivo was doing this in a very public way and that DARPA was behind them, that's for those that aren't part of the lingo, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency the kind of military sky blue foundation that funds all kinds of crackpot ideas on the theory that if even only one of them works, it will pay for all the rest. Right, Tim? Yeah, yeah. So DARPA's behind this. They go into orbit on the 11th of November in a, in a cluster launch with uh, Musk and, and a Falcon 9. They're released into a polar orbit. They watch the data, the world watches the data, all these intelligence agencies, in addition to the U.S., you know, NORAD and NASA, they're tracking, tracking, tracking. And if you just look at that damn graph, my number three, just look at the dates. The orbit goes down, 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 and the velocity goes up, 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 because, of course, they're inversely proportional. The closer a satellite is orbiting the Earth, the faster it has to move to stay in orbit conservation of momentum. And then look at that flat bridge in the altitude plot, which is the top graph. And then it starts rising. Now, the steps are caused by the fact that they only recycle this every few days. So it's rising in between, but it's shown as a step function in this display for some weird reason. And look at the velocity. See how the velocity starts over on the far left and goes down, 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 the curve going up which is down in this projection, and then it bottoms out, meaning it tops out like a, like, a, like a hill, and then begins to move in the other direction, meaning down on the graph but up in scale, and notice now the velocity is higher than when the spacecraft was injected into orbit. How is that possible that this damn thing isn't working? Uh, I Well, I, I, I mean... I don't know. I, but aren't you absolutely I, I, flabbergasted and excited that I, it I is guess, working? I I guess what I would say, I guess what I would say is this, BS aside, you've already kind of constructed a narrative for this story. You've already kind of put together a thread about what you think is going on. I don't necessarily support that narrative, so I'm not sure why you wanted to have me on as a guest because the story that I wanted to talk about was much different. And to be quite honest, I really don't care about Ivo. So. Okay, well, hang on, hang on. That's exactly why you're here because well, a lot no, of- no, let's I, not hang on. Let's not hang on. You came into this, 
We're the show. Well, we're at the we bottom. We're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Narrative. Hang on, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's pick this up on the other side, because obviously, I want you to talk about these other ideas. But that's the current discussion in the public domain now is Barry, Ivo, and what they're trying to do. It's against but that's, the, not the, that's not the story or the narrative. You're trying to construct. Fine, then you tell me what the real one is. I'm telling you what I've reconstructed from public sources. So let's let's hang on. We we got we got a, a break here to do. We'll be right back. My guest of the morning is Tim Ventura, and obviously we're going to hear some really interesting alternative ideas on this whole anti gravity um, controversy. When we return, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Oakland. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, February 18th, 2024. Tonight, we're talking with Tim Ventura about anti-gravity and his foundation of a uh, uh, nonprofit uh, research and public policy institution called American Anti-Gravity, which is now segued to something called Alt Propulsion, uh, which is linked up there in his bio. So, Tim, if I've laid out the wrong story, I'm just telling you what is on the public record. If you know, which I'm hoping you do, a lot more, obviously we want to hear what you what you know. So go ahead. Okay. Well, so the Ivo Drive is basically another one-off of uh, this. Sorry. T the Ivo Drive is basically another one-off of this T.T. Brown technology. And there are there have been many, I would say, countless attempts to recreate that. Um, I recently interviewed, and I'm working with with the Alt Propulsion Group, a team that has a device that is generating one Earth gravity thrust. So it's generating 
oh, I don't know, several thousand, maybe a million times more thrust than the IBO drive was ever anticipated to. They're doing vacuum testing and they patented it. And that is something that um, actually it's going to hit the media probably in about a week. So that's one active group that I'm working with two others. So hang, hang on. One. Can you tell us who they are? Yeah, it's it's up on it's up on my interview channel. I interviewed a fellow named Dr. Charles Bueller. It's called the Exodus Company. I believe it's called the Exodus Drive. Um, it is well, that's a different. It's a different formulation. Uh, the limitation with TT Brown stuff, a lot of it came from materials and charge and things like that. And so they have been diligently working. To well, but you you mean them. the Brown had crappy capacitors? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's new technology. So it, 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 you know, so they've been working with that and refining it and developing as Ivo has as well. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily see conspiracy here. I just see, you know, a long-term progression of technology and Ivo was one step. Well, well, no, 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 let me make very clear. The conspiracy is because the companies, both Ivo, which is based in North Dakota, and Rogue Space Systems, which built the spacecraft in New Hampshire that the IBO people in North Dakota put into the spacecraft called Barry One, named after a bat that apparently flew into the uh, offices there in New Hampshire some years ago. The, the Rogue Space people launched the IBO experiment, and they both have come out with press releases saying, A, they've had problems with the spacecraft, B, they never turned on the drive, See, it's not working, and we'll have better luck next time. Whereas the independent worldwide tracking shows the spacecraft is doing things that it could only do if the damn thing is working and it's not turned off. It's still working. But it could it be possible there's an atmosphere leak or one of the maneuvering thrusters is stuck on or they just... There are no maneuvering something. thrusters. It, it's, it's engineless. There's no reaction control system. It's based on on uh, uh, torquing, you know, uh, wheels inside. They let it lit, live in orbit for two months to outgas deliberately. You could track the outgassing and the decre decreased altitude from the atmospheric drag. You know, that's what those graphs show. And then at some point, it stops falling and begins rising. And you don't think there's a cover-up, Tim? I think, sure. again, again, my model is that the mainstream, the folks that are not part of the deep state conspiracy that knows a, a lot about this kind of technology and also what's out in outer space and U UFOs, UAPs, ETs, ruins, all that, they never expected this would work. And when it did, they freaked out. And they forced these two companies to come, to basically come public and claim it's not working. When in fact, just from the tracking, you can see this is not IVO's tracking or Rogue Space Systems tracking. This is NASA and NORAD who are keeping us alive tonight looking for Russian missiles coming over the pole to you know, bomb North America into submission. So it's a technology we critically depend upon for our very lives, and that technology is independently saying that something really wondrously weird is going on with Barry One. Now, where you and I are in total agreement, there are better technologies that either can be currently built 
or have been built in the past, this is Paul the Violet's book, or uh, will be built in the future as materials keep, keep evolving. The point is that once you have one working non-3D technology, whoever it is, whatever whatever road to Rome you're, you're walking down, it changes everything because it can't work in 3D. It must be a hyperdimensional, non-Newtonian technology, up to and including the whole idea of UNRWA waves and the expansion of the universe and all that. That's ultimately a hyperdimensional solution. They don't call it that, but that's what it is. So your guys are developing a ton of thrust. No, what one Earth gravity of thrust. Oh, okay. Well, that's 32 feet per second per second. But it depends on the size of the of the object, the vehicle, the test, right? Y yeah, I believe they're approaching one newton. So they've got a test mass with a drive that at two point two pounds will sit there against its own weight. Y yes. Wow, that's astonishing. Well, and that's that's just one team, and then I have another research. And team how come nobody's been talking about this? You're the first guy. I got to say, Tim. You know, if I didn't know you and trust you as a friend and a colleague for years, I'd say, come on, you're, you're blowing smoke. Because something like this is so revolutionary. It, it, in the era of social media, how does it not leak out? You know, you interrupt a lot. I know. I'm right? sorry. I'm trying to get okay. to the truth. Well, I, I mean, I was just starting to say I have another team that's developing. I, 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 I do interviews. That's what I do. I've done 350 or something. Them. You know, I kind of usually let my guests kind of describe their story without telling them what the story is supposed to be, coming up with an ending and placing it, right? I mean, I don't want to be difficult, but you invited me on the show to talk about this stuff. You injected a narrative. You've injected a conclusion. You're saying how things work. I'm, I'm basing it on, Tim, I'm basing it on my model. You're not talking to a radio guy. You're talking to a scientist who's independently researching the same things you're interested in. I'm presenting my conclusions based on my research. You tell me if your mileage differs. Yeah, Richard, what, give your guests a chance to talk, okay? What, you what do I'm, this every time. You interrupt your guests. Let him talk. My, my thought would be there are a lot of different research avenues moving forward right now. There are a lot of things that are producing results, right? Exodus Technologies, Charles Bueller... He is the NASA electrostatics expert. He did the electrostatics analysis on the shuttle program, on all of the space telescopes, all of that stuff. He is a PhD and he's credible. They are getting results. They have a patent. They have done all of the testing and it's moving forward and they're doing vacuum chamber testing. And what makes their work amazing is they had, they have iterative results over time. They're moving forward. I have another team that's working with Alexei Chikurkov on the Graviflyer. They've been working with him on the Graviflyer. That's something that your your folks would have to look up on Google. They look up the Gra. They, they've been working on the Graviflyer for several years, and they've been doing Zoom calls with Alexei for several months. We had thought that the Graviflyer was a hoax. This is a rotating mechanical device, kind of like an SEG, but it's it's constructed differently. And in his videos, it lifts off and flies under its own power. And it weighs, I don't know, 10 or 20 pounds. Now, in this case, 
this team, the more they work with Alexi, the more that convinced they are that it's real. They have stuff lifting off and flying that are its own power on Zoom calls. So that's something that we're working on as well. Then uh, Mark Sokol and the Falcon Space team are working on, it was X-Band, now it's S-Band. They're working on, um, oh, not Alcubierre, uh, working on basically dynamic nuclear orientation, electronic paramagnetic uh, orientation. So EPR, DNL, and that's something else that your folks can look up. Or if they just go to falconspace.org, they can get kind of a better idea there. So, you know, those are three paths that are being worked on. You've also got people working on inertial propulsion devices. Some of them seem to generate forward thrust, but there could be a slipstick effect there. So there's a lot going on, but there are no conspiracies required to say why it hasn't. I mean, the big challenge has been, um, you know, lack of funding, lack of materials, lack of scientific rigor and testing, you know. So all, I mean, those are all things that are moving forward. So my thought on the Ivo drive is I think that um, I would view this the same way that you would view Starship blowing up on the pad, right? It's going to be a series of successive tests, and the hope is that they get funding to do more, and I hope that they have wonderful results in the future. So you're not really comparing the data on Barry 1 with their statement. That's, that's what I'm really intrigued in. Why are the two so obviously opposite ends of the pole, pun intended? I don't know, but I, I, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of variables in spaceflight. You're going right to a conspiracy, right? No, I'm going to an orbit. You can't fake orbits. If you don't have an engine, you can't do anything with your orbit. You just sink into the atmosphere and ultimately burn up. How is this little guy raising its orbit when they claim they never turned it on and it failed? They can't communicate with it. Fortunately, NORAD doesn't depend on a beacon. You know, they're tracking thousands, tens of thousands of inanimate objects, including a globe from one of the Gemini missions. So they can spot a spacecraft and measure its orbit and velocity, regardless of whether it's active or just, you know, a passive rock. I don't know. Now, have you have you called Ivo? Have you called uh, Rogue Systems and asked them? No hey, one you know? is answering. We actually had someone get through on our behalf to Richard Mansell, who was the chief CEO and engineer of the IVO drive. And he said he would only talk on the air after it was successful. Now that they've announced that it's failed, you know, there should be no prohibition about coming on and talking about what happened and why it failed, and they refuse to, to even answer emails or the phone. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, But their spacecraft is doing things it should not do if it's not working. I, again, Richard, I haven't studied this in depth. I don't know. But I know that spaceflight involves a lot of different variables. It doesn't necessarily mean that a drive that was rated for 50 millinewtons, I believe, would be carrying an entire satellite that much higher into orbit. When you say you have people, you know, you're obviously aware of these various experimental groups. Are you involved in any of these experiments more than just reporting? Yeah, I'm, I'm managing development of them as well as running the conference. Wait, all well of them? Doing... 
Um, not not the Exodus team. No, that's an independent group. But more than one. Yeah. Okay. Well, you didn't tell me that. You know, it's not come up in our conversations. We haven't talked in a long time, and obviously, I should have asked deeper questions. See, I'm intrigued with the whole IVO thing because, again, if you prove one works, you prove the doorway is open to more than one and maybe much better approaches technologically. But it's that first white crow that is the hardest. You know the old Apache saying, right? It only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. Well, the fact that everyone is working tonight in orbit, regardless of what they're saying, it's working. Look at the damn graph. That's impossible. Those numbers are impossible unless A, it's working, and B, someone doesn't want us to know it's working. Bridge, can I ask a yeah, of course, of course. question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim, are you familiar with John Searle? Yeah, the Searle effect. Yeah. Um, I came across that a long time ago, and I was watching the rollers, and they're not touching the copper. But yet they're flying around this copper rings at a high rate of speed, and shouldn't inertia be pulling them away from it? Uh, that in itself is something that I don't think the physicists can explain. But yet it does uh, generate electricity, and it also gets uh, super cold, and it goes anti-gravity, according to John. And I think he's been onto something for quite a while, and... It's one of those things that we really need to look into because it's time for that kind of technology to come forward. Yeah. Um, well, there there are there are a few of those. Uh, so there is, and I, I forgot his last name. I believe it's Isaiah Thompson. I, I might be mistaken. Sounds familiar. Um, yeah. So there, there, there are several people, though. Uh, in the 1990s, a uh, Russian team in Godin and Roshan built one. So in terms of the classic Searle effect it's it's rings within rings it's based on what they call the law of the squares and it's just kind of a measurement thing this would go to richard's sacred geometries but, <laughs> it's um, not why i think you, you have layers uh they're they're neodymium and then there's aluminum and i believe uh he's using an insulator i think he's using a type of plastic and so it's rings within rings and they spin and as you mentioned they don't quite touch the surface it builds up a static electric charge, and so it functions both as a capacitor and as a rotating magnetic field. Um, the Godin and Roshan one, when they fired that up, they reported what they called self-spin. It started to spin faster on its own, and this would go to the energy generation that you mentioned. Uh, they did not construct it according to Searle's blueprint. They did some cheats. And so to see if they could get closer to it, uh, Paul Murad and John Brandenburg, and, and Richard knows John very well, um, they constructed one uh, in, I believe, around 2009. And what they found was the problem is working with these kind of materials is very, very difficult. And so they made cheats as well, theirs. So they didn't follow the blueprints, but they did see what appeared to be transient weight loss. And so they would run this and they had moments where it appeared to lose weight. The problem was um, you're talking about something that weighs, I believe, I think it was 200 to 400 pounds and it's rotating at high speed and it's even if it's fairly precise it bounces around and so so they they used a series of scales and then they had to offset stuff like that um since then the which shows back to the problem of measuring all the stuff under 1g on earth's surface 
well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if you can put it in space, you're able to basically test it in an environment where, um, you know, in theory, right, according to standard physics, even if it bounces around, you're not going to have net thrust in one direction. So space would be the gold standard. Mm, for yeah, yes. You know, um, now with the Searle effect generator, there's no guarantee. I mean, maybe it's repelling against Earth's gravity. Maybe if you get to a log range point, it loses thrust. Nobody's ever figured out whether or not that's that's the truth. But, um, but you know, there have been several tests of these. Uh, again, this, this recent fellow, Isaiah, um, he has kind of picked up, he's, he's the latest person who's picked up the bug. And he has actually been talking with John Brandenburg lately, as well as the Kepler Aerospace team. I believe they ended up purchasing the Godin and Roshan device. And so uh, hopefully they can get some new results by either repairing or at least properly testing that. So these have been around. Uh, a fellow named Fernando Morris put up some videos. Fernando worked with John Searle for several years. He put up some one ring tests. So they're very small, they're limited devices. Um, and they showed some interesting results. Those are on YouTube for anybody who wants to look. So the Searle effect generator is it's out there and it's definitely intriguing. Um, it's, it is incredibly difficult to build. Uh, you know, the, the backstory of it actually, I, strangely, the backstory seems to point to John Searle as being a hoax. Uh, there are lots and lots of reasons to believe that he was not being honest about what he came up with, right? That the whole thing was basically a money scam in England. But interestingly, everyone who has built one, even though none of them followed the rules precisely, They've all seen aspects of this strange effect. He'd mentioned that it runs cold. That's another part. And it could be because now that, that could be ionization, uh, breaking the boundary layer. Basically it breaks the skin effect, you know? So what, what that would do is let the, it, it would increase heat dissipation to the environment, but it could also be that this thing is picking up, uh, heat from another dimension, which again goes to Richard's hyperdimensional. Well, I was going to say the most interesting thing, Robert and I had dinner with some of Searle's people in Searle in Los Angeles many years ago when they wanted me to, you know, come be part of what was going on at some level. And I came away with the problem that Searle seemed to be surrounded by wolves whose only intent was to raise as much money in a grift as they could and leave John in the lurch. And so I kind of turned my attention away from Searle. But the key thing that got me so interested in his work in the beginning was this weird thermal inversion. Normally, when you run current through wires and copper and all that, things get hot. The fact that his opponents get cold indicates clearly an anti-entropic, other-dimensional lead-through, which is sucking energy from here somewhere else. I mean, I've seen other experiments that have this as a hallmark. That was that was one of the key indicators when Art interviewed somebody who had seen a UFO hovering in the middle of the woods, and he went up to it. The thing destroyed his dog, and he was determined to somehow fight it. And the thing he reports is when he laid his hands on it, it was cold, hovering there in the woods, but ice cold. He all, it was like touching, you know, frozen CO2, carbon dioxide. That, yeah. That's a hallmark of a hyper dimensional physics connection. Yeah, uh, it would appear to be. 
I, I mean, you know, and again, the idea is that it's moving energy into or out of another dimension. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why so, any one of these that works changes everything. Because all we have to do is prove that hyperdimensional physics is real, and then it's Katie bar the door. I just want to know why in the entire history of the space program, nobody has ever, NASA or private corporations, put together enough little tiny money to test one of these. And the, 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 you know, the brown capacitor one would be the first one because it's so simple. It's so elemental. It's like it doesn't spew out gases. You don't have to have a controlled environment. It likes to live in a vacuum better than in air. In other words, it's perfect for space. And nobody did that until the ideal people. I I think I think that after languishing for for many reasons for many years, and and NASA as an organization, um, NASA has been stodgy. I, I mean, you my think? Air Force con- well, my my Air Force contacts have been complaining about them for you know since. I, I mean, the the chief complaint that I heard was that we would have achieved all of Kennedy's goals and far beyond. Um, in terms of space, in terms of moon colonies and all of that stuff, had it been left with the Air Force. And by handing it over to NASA, they moved it into kind of this bureaucratic, you know, dustbin, right, that that doesn't seem to, uh, you know, I mean, NASA has a standing army for everything, right? That's been one of the chief complaints. <laughs> they tend to be anti-progress. They, you know, there have been lots of complaints about NASA. So, um, really? so I have noticed. That slowed things down, but um, I, I think what changed, and I, I, you would probably agree with this, is Elon Musk and SpaceX, right? And you know, you could look at that different ways, but I mean, if nothing else, they've they've put enough shame to the NASA efforts that um, you know that NASA is starting to pick up the pace. And I think the other part too is, again, Starship. I think they had something like twenty prototypes blow up on the pad, and and so. Uh, the NASA approach, they were very public about this for years, was failure is not an option, right? But the problem is when you're working on the edge of new technologies, failure is almost guaranteed, you know? You just have to keep pushing forward. And and so again, this, this brings me right back to the IVO drive. I think it's okay to fail. It's okay to have things blow up. It's okay to have tests that don't work. You just have to learn from Yeah, but it's not okay to be lied to, Tim. I I think philosophically or politically we have a real logarithm. You don't believe in conspiracies. I'm not a conspiracy person, no. Well, that's nothing to being a person. That's being looking at data and seeing when someone is putting their thumb on the scales. I am. Richard, I don't have enough depth on that particular one to be able to say. But what I would say is every time I've looked carefully at a conspiracy, you know, I, I haven't seen enough to prove it. Are you familiar with uh, Salvador Payas's patent that he patent for the Navy? Yeah, I, I know Sal really well. Uh, he's presented at the conference several times. I talk to him all the time. <clears throat> what do you think about his um, patent and his uh, concept? Well, I think he did a bunch of initial research, and he put the idea out there. They got some funds to test it. They got some interesting results, but they just weren't able to go further with that. He transitioned uh, into a role that is closer to the Space Force, and he has a new boss now, and they've asked him to keep a slightly lower profile in terms of patents. So 
um, you know, that's that's not a cover up. That is, he was making so much publicity, he would put something out there and it would come back to his group, right? And they'd be like, well, Sal, what have you get up to? Well, he's causing trouble again. Uh-huh. Okay, so, so the folks that are not following this, what kind of drive is he patented and what is it supposed to do? Um, he has several different variations on it. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to go into depth on the technology, but and people can look up his stuff. He's done several different variations on it. Um, he's had some RF frequencies. He's had some cavity stuff, some resonant, resonant things. So I, I would say that people... So it so it's an EM drive derivative. Three minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm watching. Thank. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I I think that his work is it's wonderful work. And again, it's initial. I don't believe that any of it has been constructed on a large scale. It's just something that you know needs more time and attention. But his role has changed a little bit, and so he can't work quite as publicly as he used to. When we come back, I want to talk about these companies that you're you're um, you know hurting like hurting cats, and which one is going to be the next one to reach orbit successfully? Because frankly, I don't think on Earth today in the current geopolitical situation that unless it works in orbit, no one's going to believe it. Yeah, I I don't I I mean I don't know potentially you know. Well, have you seen any change in the landscape down here? I mean, you've got all these guys doing amazing things and nobody's noticing because, you know, having a two-pound gadget that hovers with no engines, no rockets, no jets, no propulsion of conventional means is stunning. And the fact that nobody's picking it up on social media and talking about it is because it's, it's lost in the sea of noise and it needs to become a signal, which means it needs funding to go into orbit. And we're literally at the bottom of the hour, so let's hold it there. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura with very interesting contributions by our resident alternative technology expert, Keith Morgan. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say 
We really need you. We really need you. Over and out. <laughs>